Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Here's what's coming up in this episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast. Repeatedly, they kept telling me, well, McCall, like, thanks for just treating me like a person, you know? And for me, that's such a given, right? I mean, I really do feel like I get to hang out with my friends when I come to work every day and I see my patient. Right, I'm trained in eight minute medicine. I'm supposed to see a patient, make them feel heard, formulate a diagnosis and give them a treatment plan in eight minutes. And and for really quick, easy problems, that's fine. But when you have complex issues or you want to get someone as well as possible, um, that's not, that's just not a reality. So, you know, they range everywhere from hormones, thyroid dysfunction, obviously, to inflammatory mediated depression adrenal dysfunction or adrenal dysregulation, micronutrient depletion, and you know, the genetic and methylation factors that have been getting a lot of a lot of hype lately. Look at functionally what is this person's thyroid doing and where is the hiccup? What isn't working? Because that can tell me, I mean, I really get to understand 100% what my patient's thyroids are doing and which I think is completely necessary to be able to treat them like with precision and adequately get symptom resolution because it's almost like winning the lottery unless you really, really have an in-depth understanding of how a thyroid works. For the most part, depressed patients have too low of adrenal function. So I actually give them some supportive nutrients for their adrenals, things like ashwagandha, which can also help with sleep, and um, some B vitamins, licorice root, things that help support their adrenal function. And then I also give them some desiccated cow adrenal glands. So just some cow adrenal gland, which makes them feel better and it supplies them with what they're missing. Welcome to episode 10 of the Summit for Wellness podcast. Lately, we've been on a roll talking about different neurological issues and how to treat the entire person, not just a diagnosis. And that is the case in today's episode as well. Our presenter um, was recently on TEDx, which I am extremely excited to talk to her about, um, giving a presentation about different uh, findings she has found in her own practice. So we will be talking about that. We will also be going deeper into how to treat the entire body, not just the symptoms for different neurological issues, especially depression. But before we get to our episode today, I just want to let everybody know that we will be taking a couple week break. Um, And then after that, we do have some really awesome uh, podcasts lined up. We will be talking about celiac disease. We'll be talking about soft tissue health. We'll be having a running podcast coming on as well. So those are some of the things that will be uh, getting released later into May. So look forward to those episodes coming out. Another thing that I've been actively looking for is uh, ways to make getting healthier easier. And one of those ways is to have a really simple and easy place to shop for all your natural health products. And one of those places is an online retailer called Thrive Market. And if you haven't heard of Thrive Market, um, they are one of the revolutionary online marketplaces with a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. 
and it really is affordable. The um, A lot of the prices of the products are around wholesale pricing, so you are getting a great discount on um, all your food products, and they ship right to your door. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash thrive, you will receive 25% off your first order with Thrive Market. So head on over to summitforwellness.com slash thrive to try out Thrive Market for free and receive the 25% discount. Okay, if you have been enjoying our show, um, if you could subscribe to our channel, that would be extremely helpful, especially if you listen to iTunes. If you subscribe and if you leave a rating and a review, that really helps our show out and it really helps um, get it out to other people as well. So um, it's really simple to leave a review. You just go under the show itself and there's a little uh, rate and review tab and you can leave us a nice uh, rating. And also if you want to get the most up-to-date releases of the podcast, then if you go to summitforwellness.com and sign up for our newsletter, you'll get um, an email the day that each episode comes out. So go ahead and give that a try. Okay, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to the Summit for Wellness podcast. Today we are diving deeper into the topic of integrative psychiatry and how to treat the person, not just a diagnosis, which is exactly what our guest today specializes in. She has a very unique outlook on how to treat her patients and isn't afraid to practice medicine differently because she believes the current system is broken. She chooses to see patients like people and friends and treats them as such. She is a recent TEDx speaker and also the co-founder of Modern Medicine, a functional medicine practice and soon-to-be Modern Thyroid Clinic in Austin. She spent years practicing traditional psychiatry, and ultimately it became her platform for much-needed change in her own practice and is what led her to a unique approach to mental health. Please welcome McCall McPherson to our show. Good morning. How are you today, McCall? Oh, I'm doing good. Probably a little bit more rested than you are because I'm farther on towards the east, but I'm great. Yes, it is pretty (laughs) early on the west coast over here. Yeah, no kidding. So can you talk about um, a little bit about your background, how you got into integrative psychiatry and functional medicine itself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a PA, which puts me in a pretty unique situation and So I'm board certified in all specialties of medicine, and it kind of allows me to move around a little bit more than physicians and nurse practitioners who are specialized usually. Um, So, you know, a couple years out of school, I started practicing regular psychiatry. And, you know, even even prior to that, I was actually in in a neurosurgery job just out of school, and I started having terrible, terrible fatigue and brain fog. And I was basically going home every day at 3.30 and going to bed, um, resting and recuperating from the day and preparing for the next day and kept going to my doctor, going to my doctor, begging him for help, um, telling him, you know, I didn't think my thyroid was right. And he kept kind of shutting me down and telling me I was fine. So eventually I found what was then the only integrative medicine physician in Austin. And he basically fixed my thyroid and gave me my life back in six weeks after I'd been spending six months in bed every hour outside of work. So that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to integrative medicine and primed me to be, to be more open. And then I, 
a couple years later, I left my neurosurgery job and started doing regular psychiatry, which I love. I'm my undergrad degree is in psychology, and I come from two parents um, in psychotherapy, a psychologist and a psychotherapist. So it kind of it's always been in in my genes and my blood, and I loved it. I loved regular psychiatry, but when a, a few years in, I was just unsettled with the fact that you know no one was screening these people for really normal common medical conditions um, and they were just kind of treating the symptoms right so it didn't matter if you had depression because you had a thyroid problem childhood trauma or if you're a man with low testosterone right it, it's all treated the same um, my collaborating physician at the time would kind of scoff at me for screening my depression patients for for thyroid problems and eventually I'm like this this just doesn't feel right like I something else has to be going on for some of these people and I can't just dismiss that fact and I need to find a way to dig a little bit deeper so you know I stumbled into a training like program online for clinicians in the mental health field called integrative medicine for mental health and I, I signed up for for the next conference available and then it was amazing. I mean, it really, really opened my eyes to an entire other paradigm of diagnosis and treatment. And that was sort of the thing that solidified my place in integrative and functional medicine, um, you know, primed with my own, my own thyroid problem that just opened the door for it. So... Eventually, I got to a point where I couldn't continue to treat patients like in a regular <clears throat> psychiatric manner, and I had to step away from that and look at them consistently from an integrative and functional perspective. Um, and it's it's been incredible. I mean, it really it's been such a journey for me, and I've gotten to help people on so much deeper levels than I ever anticipated or was able to in the fifteen minute kind of timetable that I was on in regular psychiatry. So that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you um, found the integrated mental health online and it's, is it a program or a conference or what is it? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. It's a conference and they'll train even therapists to be able to kind of screen for these pretty common, well, it starts common and it goes as deep as you're able to, but um, yeah, it's a training facility. They're partnered with a integrative and functional medicine testing company called Great Plains Labs. So they also teach and train on a lot of biochemistry lab analysis and really empower clinicians with the tools pretty candidly on how to approach and resolve a lot of these, a lot of these biochemical issues. It's a pretty, a pretty fascinating thing. I've maintained um, a relationship and training with them as the years have passed, you know, and I also obviously pursue the Institute for Functional Medicine, but, but they're a great, great training facility. And I even replicate some of what they do on a local level. And I go and I train therapists and interns in Austin on how to screen for really common medical and biological issues in their patient population or their client population so that, you know, that those clients have a chance to actually get symptom 
resolution um, if they have a medical condition that's driving their symptoms. Do they have some kind of online practitioner locator so people can find practitioners all over the country? They do. So when you train with them, they they will post your information online under their registered clinician database. So yeah, people are able to track down local clinicians that have trained under their methodology. That makes it really nice for people looking for practitioners who specialize in more of these type of areas. Yeah, I'll send you a link so you can post it on your on your blog. Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes for this episode. So with um, all the years that you've spent uh, practicing, this actually led you to a really unique opportunity where you were able to talk um, or give a presentation for TEDx. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So it was such an honor and a really, really exciting opportunity. But I ended up, you know, coming to the topic really by way of my patients because repeatedly they kept telling me, well, McCall, like, thanks for just treating me like a person, you know? And for me, that's such a given, right? I mean, I really do feel like I get to hang out with my friends when I come to work every day and I see my patients. Um, but I know that that's not a given in the realm of regular medicine because I've been in it. But um, the topic of the overall TED Talk was humanity. So my specific talk really focused on the concept of, you know, we all want to make an impact on the world. We all want to help people change the world, make it better. But we very commonly think we need to do that with with some noble profession, a doctor, a professor, a firefighter, that kind of thing. But my TEDx concept is really grounded in the idea that it's not what you do, but how you do it. And my reason for that belief is, so I'm in medicine, right? The most, the, the, the most, you know, noblest of professions that people go into to help people. But really the reality is, is I make the most impact in medicine just by treating my patients like humans and by recognizing their humanity. And I've worked to kind of tether myself to that concept throughout my day. And, you know, so I sent a poll out to my patients when I was exploring this concept and this idea. And I included several other questions to, you know, isolate variables out for people, people pleaser bias. But um, really the question I was looking for was, what's been the greatest contributing factor for your recovery at modern medicine? And I use medications every day in my practice, especially for a lot of other issues, thyroid and whatnot. Less than 10% attributed the majority of their recovery to medicine, which is pretty profound. And over 77% of them stated that the majority of their recovery had come simply from being treated like a fellow human being and friend. So, you know, from that, what I would love for us to extrapolate is if we can find a way to be tethered to the humanity of others, and my TED Talk really explores the details of this, but as we move through our day, you know, whether it's someone that's being bullied at school or a bully at your kid's school, what whatnot, or, you know, the person behind the Starbucks counter, if we can be tethered to their humanity and recognize it even in brief interactions, I think that we can really make a positive change in this world. So it's it's a pretty interesting concept. <laughs> Yeah, and it's uh, really interesting because it's kind of following along with a lot of the studies coming out that um, 
people that are in these unhealthy states, it isn't just a physical state that they're in. There's that big emotional component as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it, I, yeah, I mean, stress and, it, and, you know, it drives disease. And if we can find a way to connect with people and be mindful, right, the concept is ground, grounded in mindfulness, then really we could change lives on a, on a micro scale throughout our day. So how long do you spend with these patients? So my patients, initially I spend about 75 minutes with them and then follow-ups are about 45 minutes. That's a lot different than conventional medicine practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, regular conventional medicine just, I mean, I'm sure you were trained the same way, right? I'm trained in eight-minute medicine. I'm supposed to see a patient, make them feel heard, formulate a diagnosis, and give them a treatment plan in eight minutes. And and for really quick, easy problems, that's fine. But when you have complex issues or you want to get someone as well as possible, um, that's not, that's just not a reality. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily fortunate to be able to spend that kind of time with my patients. Yeah, and they benefit a lot more as you've seen in your practice. Oh, it's just a totally, it's just a totally different playing field, you know. I get to get people well and change their lives. It's awesome. So let's talk about the conventional approach to depression a little bit, and then we will talk more about your approach to depression and integrative psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I touched on this earlier, but conventional psychiatry and conventional medicine's approach to depression is very, very one-size-fits-all. It completely disregards the driving factor for your depression, and I say that, you know, I, I want to tease something out in that I definitely want to move forward through this conversation that we're having with the understanding that I am not speaking in regards to like depression that's driven by family of origin issues or by trauma or anything of that nature. I, I address, the, I leave that to the professionals, right? The therapists, the psychotherapists, the psychologists. What I want to talk about today is really like the physiological and biochemical driving factors of depression. So we'll just kind of lay that groundwork down here. But yeah, I mean, regular medicine just does not take into account at all the biological causes for depression. And they just tack on in really, in having uh, experienced this myself as, as a clinician, it's very much just trial and error, right? moving through medications, um, regardless of the cause of your depression, just trial and error one after the other. And then oftentimes just tacking on more and more. Um, usually if you get put on an antidepressant or something of that nature, you're pretty much condemned to be on it for good because psychiatrists and primary care doctors who are usually the prescribing people, they get very uneasy if you want to get off of them. Um, so you're just kind of stuck, right? Um, I don't think they, well, research-wise, it's it's pretty well known that they don't have a tremendously um, efficacious effect over that of like a placebo effect. So, you know, I do think that in cases they work, but if we could, you know, stratify people to see if perhaps that medication is the right route for them or if another route of root cause resolution or even supplements or natural things are better, 
um, I think that we could impact more more people. And you know, as far as the the integrative medicine approach is really grounded in a few concepts, right? So as a as in my personal practice, I'm not like an anti-drug person. I use drugs every day in my practice. I think that they are useful in many cases. Um, but as my own research has shown me from my TEDx talk, like there are other things that work better than medication. Even one I didn't include with you guys is um, lifestyle modification and supplements, which I think was 20% roughly um, of patients said that, that that improved them the most. So um, yeah, well, integrative medicine basically utilizes natural remedies and supplements that really I see profoundly impact people. Things like magnesium for anxiety or B12 for depression. And it's on a pretty case-by-case basis. Um, and then the other component to that is where the functional kind of approach comes in as well, which is really root cause resolution. So what is causing this person's depression? And let's fix that. So then in turn, the symptoms will resolve. And today, I guess we're going to talk about a few areas of things that could be commonly going wrong or things that I certainly see commonly going wrong in my practice, right, with depression. So what are some of those areas, just to jump straight into it? Yeah, so, you know, they range everywhere from hormones, thyroid dysfunction, obviously, to inflammatory mediated depression, adrenal dysfunction or adrenal dysregulation, micronutrient depletion, and you know, the genetic and methylation factors that have been getting a lot of a lot of hype lately. So let's go into um, hormones and thyroid, especially since you're opening up a thyroid clinic. Um, talk more about that. Yeah, so thyroid is is one of my passions because I've I've sat on the other side of the desk you know, from a physician and just very desperately seeking help. And I know how much it can, how much it can affect people's quality of life. But, and in many, many, many times in my practice, I end up with patients. I mean, usually people come to see me kind of as a last resort. They start with their primary care doctor, then they go to a psychiatrist. And then eventually if they're not getting any help, they end up, they end up with me. But um, I very commonly see people come to me for depression that is treatment refractory or unable to be improved with with regular medications and they really just have a thyroid problem so and what that really looks like is depression fatigue brain fog um, low sex drive dry skin brittle nails brittle hair constipation and the problem is that regular medicine has sort of halted in if not regressed in its diagnostic modalities and treatment of hypothyroidism. And they, unfortunately, the way that they are diagnosing people and the way that they are treating them, they, people just don't end up getting well. And people who have hypothyroidism is very, very commonly being missed. And so it leaves what I believe to be millions and millions of people suffering. And depression is like one of the first symptoms. And in my opinion, people go on average 10 years of having it before they're even diagnosed. So with depression being one of, if not the most common cause of disability in our country, this is like a huge issue, right? So 
um, yeah, thyroid, thyroid, thyroid with depression. And it's very, very easy to treat if you have someone who knows what they're doing, but you've got to find someone on your side to properly screen you and, and treat you. And I always send people to like stopthethyroidmadness.com or hypothyroidmom.com. They have a lot of resources for people there. Um, but you can take all the antidepressants in the world. If you have a thyroid problem, your depression will not really go away until you treat it, right? So that's, that's one, you know, issue. And another kind of hormone-related issue for divisively between men and women. So for women, low estrogen or menopause or premature ovarian failure or years of adrenal stress can lead to low estrogen, which really impacts our serotonin and our mood. Um, and that needs to be kind of teased out and addressed depending on the root cause, right? Is it menopause or is it adrenal related? Um, and then low testosterone. So I, it's a pretty interesting thing, testosterone right now, because I am seeing more and more and more men in their 20s and 30s with low T or low testosterone. And the other thing that I'm finding that's pretty interesting is in accompaniment with their low testosterone, they have super high estrogen. And men should not have super high estrogen, right? And testosterone, well, high estrogen in men really lowers their testosterone. And what I found that it's related to is plastics. So it's most commonly in the guys that I see who travel for work and who are always drinking out of plastic bottles or heating up their food and reusable plastic containers and that kind of thing. And it just knocks their testosterone way down because it blocks androgens, BPAs do, and they express estrogen, estrogenergic activity. So I'm seeing a ton of men with depression in their 20s from low testosterone that's truly because of exogenous kind of BPA exposure. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah, and people don't really realize that estrogen is everywhere now too even the ink on your receipt that you get from the store Mm -hmm. that has estrogen on it too yep isn't that crazy yeah which i mean and then like kids too so it's men and kids that are being impacted by this right but it's a it's a real problem and people dismiss it but I, i i am so serious that i see it really really impact people's lives and then i'll take out all the plastics from these guys lives one of them who had been on breast cancer medication to lower his estrogen from his endocrinologist still could not get it lowered, you know, took out all the plastics. I did put them on a liver detox and some dim, which helps with excess estrogen. And I got it normal for the first time that it had been normal in six years. I mean, just it's everywhere. Wow. Everywhere. Yeah. So side tangent with that, do you think all this extra estrogen leads to um, premature puberty for uh, girls? Totally. Like, how can it not? And and the other thing that it leads to that I see all the time, and you might see this too, Brian, I see so many women with estrogen dominance and their progesterone is zero, which this is a topic of another, of another talk, but low progesterone I mean, you have tremendous anxiety and even agoraphobia where you don't want to leave your house that's associated with low progesterone. And these women are overloaded with estrogen, have no progesterone, which also puts you at risk, right, for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's crazy. All, all these poor little kids. And then boys too. Imagine the boys with all this estrogen. The growing boys. It's terrible. Yeah, it throws everything off. Yeah. So going uh, quickly back to the thyroid, you mentioned yeah. that um, there's some other testing that you do. What uh, tests do you typically run to check for hypothyroid? Yeah, yeah. We should have a whole talk about thyroid because I love it. I but agree. Yeah. So I check, you know, I screen people for TSH, which is really the only thing that regular medicine uses and probably among the least important. Free T4. Free T3, which is the most important, that regular medicine has no idea what it is. And I do reverse T3, which is an inhibitory mechanism of your thyroid um, that's commonly elevated in people who are on levothyroxine and Synthroid, which is why it doesn't really ever work for people. Um, and then I screen for antibodies. So TPO antibodies and anti like thyroglobulin antibodies. Occasionally, I screen for Graves antibodies, but that's only in the clinical setting that makes me think this person might actually have Graves. So you do basically the entire thyroid panel. Heck yeah, because I really look at functionally what is this person's thyroid doing and where is the hiccup? What isn't working? Because that can tell me, I mean, I really get to understand 100% what my patient's thyroids are doing and which I think is completely necessary to be able to treat them like with precision and adequately get symptom resolution because it's almost like winning the lottery unless you really, really have an in-depth understanding of how a thyroid works. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's such a common problem, right? I mean, we need to, we need to learn as clinicians and do it because in regular medicine, oh my gosh, it's just, it's really a tragedy. Yeah, I would love to bring you on to talk about thyroid. I think there's a lot that we could um, hash out with that one. Yeah, let's do it. Next, let's go into inflammatory issues within the body, especially the gut, Yeah, and how that would influence depression. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Historically, regular medicine has been looking at depression as this um, monoamine deficiency theory, meaning, oh, well, you're short in serotonin. So you have depression, right? That's been the long-standing theory behind um, medications. And really, more progressive psychiatric literature, not even in integrative and functional medicine, but in regular psychiatry, is really honing in on the theory that depression is actually inflammatory-mediated, that it's cytokine-mediated. And they're, they're really heavily looking at research in the gut, and they're connecting gut inflammation to brain inflammation, and that as being a key factor in what's driving depression, anxiety, and even bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia in some cases. So um, it's, it's really an interesting time to be involved in psychiatry because the paradigm is completely shifting. Um, and so really, in, in my practice, I look at gut inflammation in a few different ways, and I do hone it in clinically, but some things that I always take into consideration as driving gut inflammation are food-mediated allergies, and I'm sure you're familiar with these. I really look at the IgG component, which is just the chronic inflammatory component of our immune system that's really hard to peg down and pinpoint um, where it's coming from because it cannot show up for 30 minutes or five to seven days. And the half-life of IgG, meaning how long it takes to work itself out of your system well, the half-life's 26 days, so that 
that inflammatory response is in our body for about three months. And so we just are walking around constantly inflamed, right? And inflammation in our gut is inflammation in our brain. So we have to figure out and determine those food responses that are driving that inflammatory response and remove them so that our gut can heal and subsequently our brain can heal. So that's kind of one big factor that drives, you know, inflammation. Yeah. Could you uh, talk about some of the foods that you find to be the most inflammatory? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's so many different trains of thought on this, but the reality is, is the foods that I see objectively returning as inflammatory, right? So it's in black and white. This isn't me and my preferred diet of choice. Really, the most common that I see are grains, dairy, and beans. So very, very much um, centered in a paleo-based diet is confirmed for me to be the lowest inflammatory diet for the majority of my patients. And then there's one-off people, you know, and one-off food allergies um, that are random, that are kind of individualized. But if I had to say from my experience, what would be the best kind of diet for people that for low inflammation, it would certainly be paleo. Do you have a hard time getting people to switch over? Um, you Especially know, getting off grains. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I do. The hardest kind of diet that I have people migrating over to is keto, keto, a ketogenic diet, oh, just yes. because the learning, the new kind of system is hard. But a lot of times people are so desperate by the time, you know, they come to us, they are pretty receptive. And that I tell them, look, here's the deal, right? You're going to hate me for a little while, and I'm okay with that. But there's going to be a turning point where you feel good enough to continue on. And that is kind of what I tell them to hold out for. And very commonly, I get them to that by way of the whole 30. So, the Whole30 is a diet that really is great at breaking biochemical kind of addictions in, in terms of food, right? So people who say they could never give up cheese, if you put them on the Whole30, it breaks their biochemical addiction to casomorphone, which is the morphine derivative that cheese breaks down into by the time it reaches our brain. <laughs> so obviously we are addicted to it, right? Same way that pain medicine addicts are addicted to their, their medication. Um, but once you break that, it's really not so terrible. And if you move people from the Whole30 to a paleo diet, it's easier for them to have a longer, long-term commitment. Because if you move straight to paleo, sometimes it allows some of those residual biochemical addictions to continue. And then it's just people perpetually having to have a lot of self-control to stay on the diet. But if you detox them out front, they don't have to have continual self-control. It's just self-propagating at that point because they've already broken those addictions. Yeah, that would be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I see pretty profound impacts with the Whole30. And then I do usually have them move into like a modified paleo diet. Okay, so once you remove the uh, food allergens and if they still have inflammation, then what? Then we go looking at their gut microbiome. So the balance of the good, bad, and in-between bacteria and the yeast in their gut. So really, if inflammation is gut-centric, I I go heavy there, right? Um, And I do a stool sample, which is everybody's favorite, you know, lab test of choice um, (laughs) for, you know, 
as reasons that you can imagine. But, you know, when you do a functional stool sample, it gives you back so much information. You know, the good bacteria, the bad bacteria, protozoans, you know, yeast, um, inflammatory markers. It just gives us so much information that we can work with and modify so that we can rebalance that bacteria. And then that gives you the direction to go to try to reduce inflammation. Yeah, yeah, it really does. So then once you've approached it from a food and a microbiome standpoint, you kind of just move into this gut healing protocol measures, which is a long process. It's a long process to heal people's guts. It's one of the more long-term things that I have to do. But once you heal their gut, they in turn, they have actually have less food allergies. And then the inflammation eventually subsides in their gut and in their brain. And it's uh, this slow, insidious improvement, but long-term, like great outcomes, you know? So for the people sitting at home, how can they know if they have all this inflammation in their body that they need to work on? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously gut-centered inflammation are things like diarrhea or constipation, mucus in your stool, or if your stool is floating to the top in the toilet, um, cramping, bloating, gas, you know, all of the usual suspect things that would that would point us in the direction of specifically gut inflammation. And then once your gut is inflamed and it starts kind of systemically impacting you throughout your body, you get like joint pain, fatigue. Um, You'll also have like, it's very common that you'll get skin rashes, psoriasis, eczema. Um, Also, you can get little bumps on the back of your arms, which are called keratosis pilaris. And that's indicative of gut inflammation that's basically keeping you from absorbing your omega-3 fatty acids. Um, And it's common actually in people with celiac. So, you know, a lot of it is gut-centered symptoms, but then you have these overall just general malaise and fatigue issues. Obviously, if you have any candida um, skin, either skin yeast issues or obviously in your mouth, that too is indicative of a gut microbiome imbalance problem. Awesome. So the next common area that we have is adrenal dysfunction. Can you go into how the adrenals can affect depression? Yeah. So, you know, regular medicine doesn't believe in adrenal dysfunction. They think that our adrenals, which are responsible for our stress response and even like our daily sleep-wake energy cycle, they believe they work perfectly or one day they stop working and then we get Addison's disease, which is not in general the way that life works. Usually there's a process of failure. Um, And so functional medicine really does believe in adrenal fatigue. And over the years, I've seen enough people have it and recover that I I truly am a believer. And, you know, hallmarks of adrenal fatigue are, you know, obviously fatigue, especially most pronounced in the morning and in the late afternoon around three or four. Other symptoms are like salt cravings, discoloration of your skin called melasma, um, dizziness upon standing when your body should compensate for that blood pressure change. Your adrenals can be slow to do that. Um, Brain fog is another one. Insomnia. Patients often describe it as feeling wired and tired. Um, And I see it go hand in hand with thyroid dysfunction almost more than I don't see it go. I mean, it's, I I see it all the time with thyroid dysfunction. It's a pretty interesting concept, but 
in, in regards to depression, these are the people who are so tired, right? So regular medicine thinks that depression causes fatigue. And I do think in some cases that's true, but in the majority of cases, I think that whatever their biological issue is, is they're experiencing is driving their fatigue and then their depression. So you see these depressed patients, these depressed people who just don't want to get out of bed. And then you, you have to be suspicious, obviously, of the thyroid problem too, but of adrenal fatigue and another kind of hallmark of a person with depression who's actually suffering from adrenal fatigue is their antidepressant will work for a few months and then it stops working and they become unresponsive to it. And so they constantly have to be adding, increasing, or changing. And it's because they've used up their adrenal capacity. Their adrenals are trying so hard to create enough hormones to support that antidepressant. And then they're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. And they give up. So the ante has to be upped and you know they need more or a different or an additional medication. Um, so yeah, that's a pretty interesting one. And it is such a solvable problem as well. And the way that I do it, you can test for it by doing what's called a four-point salivary cortisol test where you spit into a little cup four times a day in the morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, and before bed. Um, and you measure out their cortisol and their pattern of their cortisol because it should follow a very specific pattern. Um, so you test it that way and then you treat it accordingly. But for the most part, depressed patients have too low of adrenal function. So I actually give them some supportive nutrients for their adrenals, things like ashwagandha, which can also help with sleep, and um, some B vitamins, licorice root, things that help support their adrenal function. And then I also give them some desiccated cow adrenal gland. So just some cow adrenal gland, which makes them feel better and it supplies them with what they're missing. And then do you work on any lifestyle stuff as well to lower the stress response within them? Absolutely. So, you know, you can't supplement your way out of adrenal fatigue, some lifestyle modifications that really any person who thinks they're struggling with adrenal fatigue need to do is, you know, Really try and hone in on your sleep. Make sleep a priority. If your body tells you you need a nap and you can take a nap, take a nap. Um, another, So you want to combat anything that raises your cortisol. So not getting enough protein or calories causes adrenal stress. So you want to be sure and wake up and eat protein every morning, which is pretty common with people with adrenal fatigue. They're waking up and eating like fruit and yogurt, you know. Get enough calories throughout the day. Um exercise in a different way and that's less high intensity which is normally thought to be great but it's just furthering the adrenal burnout so restorative exercise yoga walking swimming that kind of thing is really much more beneficial than this really kind of warrior intensive training um, and then of course the biggest thing that people can do to help combat furthering adrenal fatigue is meditation and Really, the ways that I tell my patients to meditate are, are two kind of options. One is like a guided meditation, and I frequently use the Headspace app for my patients. It's really good at teaching them how to meditate, starting kind of from the ground up. And then the way that I commonly um, have found to be most successful for me, because I tend to have a lot of brain activity, you know, thinking going on in my mind, I really, I just sit in a dark room and... I start to count backwards from 100 and every breath is one. 
So I've set a timer so I don't need to worry about how long have I been there. Two minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, right? Set it for 10 minutes and every breath is one. So 100, 99, and you just sort of recenter back on that number every time your thoughts trail off. Some days it'll be easy, some days you won't be able to do it, and that's fine. You pick up and retry the next day. But if you can keep honing in on your number, by the time you get to 75, you realize that you know, you're not having to focus as hard on your number, and there's a lot more space in your mind. And really, that's when you're meditating. So the skies don't open, nothing crazy happens. It's very subdued, but it's the quickest way to resolve an elevated cortisol response. I like that trick. I'm going to have to try that. It took me a while to figure out my system, <laughs> but it seems to work. Okay, and then the final area that we have is micronutrient depletion and methylation. Yeah, so this is um, where a lot of attention is is coming and going right now. So, you know, Really, I think the next wave of medicine in general is really going to be individualized to genetics for people. And that's already happening in like cancer treatment and whatnot. But, you know, in kind of a big thinking way, micronutrient depletion really leads to a lack of the ability for us to form our neurotransmitters. And you can think about that simply like when you don't get enough protein. So protein breaks down into amino acids, and our amino acids are coupled together with some cofactors, zinc, B vitamins, folate, and those things form our neurotransmitters. So if we're not getting enough calories, if we're not getting enough protein, if we're not getting enough micronutrients, we're kind of fighting you know, a, a, with a losing game plan because you can have all the antidepressants in the world, but... If you can't create the building blocks for your biochemistry, you're going to be short-ended, you know. Um, so that is kind of the micronutrient realm. And then that also comes into play with inflammation. So if your gut is inflamed, you're not able to absorb your micronutrients as well. Or if you don't have enough stomach acid and you're unable to break down your food very well. So all of that kind of holistically comes into play. And then, you know, as far as methylation and genetic factors... One thing I do in my practice is I do analyze people's DNA. Their 23andMe is really the most popular format that people are getting access to their genetic data. Um, and you can see people can be genetically set up to not be able to efficiently form their neurotransmitters or work through their complete systems of biochemistry in order to facilitate mental health. Um, and the cool thing about genetics is Sometimes people get really um, dismayed because they think, well, these are my genes. I can't change my genes, right? But that's not really the case. You know, 20% of our phenotype or of the way that we are or that we look is made up of our genes. And the rest of that 80% is what's called epigenetics or um, how our genes are turned off and on or expressed. And really, you control that with inflammation or lack thereof and micronutrients. And I won't dig into too many details with that right now because I could talk about that for 45 minutes. But um, the, the fact is that we can turn off and on these genes and compensate for our genetic inadequacies, right? So that we can still 
complete our biochemical pathways to form our neurotransmitters or not build up too many of the bad ones that lead to depression or anxiety and, and so on and so forth. So it's a pretty cool, a pretty cool and interesting thing. So I find it interesting that a lot of people are showing uh, the mutation for methylation. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, methylation is pretty, is pretty unique. I do think in some ways, I think it's getting too much attention, you know, especially the two genes that are the most, the most well-known, the A1298C and the C677 gene. But there's many, many other genes that are responsible for methylation. But the thing that is actually unique about methylation is that it's sort of this flagging system that is pervasively throughout our entire body. So I've read a, I've read a, a statistic and I haven't verified this, so don't hold me to it, but I, I've read that methylation is responsible for over 2 billion chemical reactions in our body each second. So if you have a problem with methylation, then it impacts everything, right? And that's why I do think it is getting so much attention. I think it's a lot more complicated than a lot of people have made it. You know, it's not just sort of this one size fix fits all approach to methylation defects. And you can really study that deeper with people like Amy Yasko, who really dissected out to an insanely complicated level that I'm not on. But um, yeah, it is getting a lot of attention, but it is worth looking into because over 70% of people with depression and anxiety have a methylation defect. So that's correlated with significance somewhere. You mentioned people having problems not producing enough stomach acid. How would you go about um, increasing stomach acid for people? Um, so, you know, there's a few ways. Um, so low stomach acid is correlated with a few different things. So it can be correlated with hypothyroidism where you're just, you know, everything is so slow and so dried up that you're not producing enough. And then as that kind of happens and goes on, you get micronutrient depletion um, and so on and so forth. It can, be, it can be origined in a lot of different ways, but the overall kind of pattern is that you have this low stomach acid, which opposite to most people's belief is actually correlated with gastric reflux, right? So regular medicine treats GERD or esophageal reflux with medicines that lower your stomach acid, <laughs> which in functional medicine and integrative medicine, largely we agree that that reflux is actually caused by stomach low stomach acid and you actually need to supplement more stomach acid as opposed to reduce it. Um, really just because the way that our bodies are wired, when we eat food, we're supposed to secrete large intense amounts of stomach acid for 20 or 30 minutes digest our food and then stop secreting it and the food moves on and, and is out of our stomach. But what happens when you have low stomach acid is your food just sits there for hours and you're just slowly secreting this small amount of stomach acid for three, four, or five hours. So ultimately that leads to reflux because it's just there at, for an inappropriate duration of time. So long story short, we treat low stomach acid with more stomach acid as opposed to, you know, omeprazole or something that reduces it further, which would be your regular gastroenterologist's approach. You mean we shouldn't take Tums? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no. Or Zantac, you know. No, stop the madness. Uh-uh. Darn it. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, we're actually, you'll, you'll just be condemned to a life of Tums. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, McCall, we are getting close to time. So all the information that you talked about is great. And any of those links that uh, you mentioned where we'll put in the show notes. But tell us a little bit more about um, your Love is a Real Medicine group that you started. Oh, yeah. I forgot that we were going to talk about this. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, we all obviously got the news that, unfortunately, the crisis in Syria continues and is killing more children and more families, right? And we all politics aside, that in and of itself is a tragedy. And of course, like most people, I'm struggling with what I can do. I'm not in a position, even as a healthcare provider, to pack up my things and move move to Syria to help people um, on the ground floor. So I, I decided that I couldn't could not continue to do nothing or the little amount that I have been doing. So what I'm what we're trying to create here is a a partnership between healthcare practitioners and patients and basically set aside a day where we can engage together by, you know, patients purposefully scheduling on this day with quite a few healthcare providers that, that I know and that want to participate. Um, and instead of paying your healthcare provider or instead of my patients paying me, I, all I ask is that we engage in a conversation about the crisis in Syria and the damage that's, that's happening and the devastation that's happening there. Um, and we kind of, by doing that, we bring it into the light and we keep it in the forefront of our mind instead of kind of shoving it aside, which we have a tendency to do, or at least I do, because it is so, it's so horrific. Um, so I want to set aside a day where my patients will not pay me, but they will donate to an organization called Preemptive Love Coalition that's been a presence in Syria and Iraq for almost a decade. And there really are on the ground floor either evacuating families or feeding the families in the most hostile environments there, um, bringing them food and water, which obviously they go without for years. So. Um, I want patients to participate in this by donating to them um, on a monthly basis, at least for the equivalent of my appointment over the course of three months. So if it costs $150 to see me, you donate $50 a month for three months. And then you decide if you want to carry on um, with that donation uh, uh, yourself. But yeah, I want to find a creative way to to help facilitate these people who are on the ground floor and then also to to keep the dialogue open in America about what is actually happening there. That's a really powerful movement. Can you tell um, the people where to go to find out more about that? Yeah, if you want to find out more about that, you can search the Facebook group, Love is the Real Medicine, and... This started as really centered in healthcare practitioners, and I would love for as many healthcare practitioners to participate as possible and patients. Um, but if you are in any genre of any service industry and you want to participate, this is not an exclusive thing, obviously. Um, we want to be as inclusive as possible. So yeah, find that, or you can find me on Facebook at McCall McPherson, P-A-C, and reach out. I would love to hear from you. 
And then you have a couple of websites that people can find you at as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. You can find me and my own personal website at McCallMcPherson.com, um, M-C-C-A-L-L-M-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N. Um, they don't call me Double Mac for nothing. And... <laughs> And you can find out more about my uh, Modern Medicine Group practice that I co-own at modernmedicinegroup.com. And then the new division of that would be modernthyroidclinic.com, which is almost up and running and I could not be more excited about. Awesome. Is there anywhere else people can find you? Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at just McCall McPherson. Um, I use Instagram most commonly as my platform of communication and I'd love to connect and um, reach out if you can. Awesome, McCall. Thanks for this amazing talk. There's so much information in here that I even digested. So this was great. Thanks for having me, Brian. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll have to bring you on again for to talk about the thyroid. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Yeah, you let me know. If you want to learn more about McCall, go to McCallMcPherson.com or you could go to modernmedicinegroup.com to find out more information about her and the services that she offers. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe on whatever podcast channel that you are on. And if you are on iTunes, please go into the Summit for Wellness podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We would love to hear everybody's feedback and everyone's ratings and reviews actually helps to get this podcast out to other people. So the more help you guys can give me, the more other people will be able to benefit from these type of podcasts. And we will see you all next time on the Summit for Wellness podcast.